Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Uh, I'm very good. I appreciate that. And uh, at this time, we're happy to have our brother Ron. Brother Ron uh, spent, let's see, by, back when it was Miami Christian College. Now, isn't it like Trinity or something? Yeah. Now. Right. Um, and that was down in Miami. He'll tell you a little bit more about himself, but currently fellowships at the Bear Lake Bible Chapel and serves up at the camp as our maintenance director. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Most are we are very familiar with, and some we are not because we don't get to see a whole lot, but it's good to be here this morning and uh, been looking forward to ministering in God's Word. Um, this morning, uh, the Lord had burdened me to pick a topic that's kind of been a little dear to me, um, and we're going to be talking about the pathway to greatness in the kingdom of God, the pathway of greatness or being great in God's kingdom, you know. When we come together here, we come together before the Lord in fellowship, and we, we really want to hear him speak. And so I'm going to try to stick to my notes because um, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail. I have that squirrel syndrome. Have you ever, you know, the squirrel syndrome? You know, squirrel. And I don't want to do that to you today. <laughs> so I'll try to stick to my notes. But if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to read a very familiar passage, and um, it's going to give us, a, we'll read this, and it's going to give us a setting for the Lord's Word this morning, beginning in verse 20, Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Um, read together with me, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. Bowing down and making a request of him. And I'm reading, most of my reading is going to be from the New American Standard. I go use the New American Standard, and a lot of times I'll use the New King James. So I know there's other translations, so just bear with me. And uh, so the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom... These two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, well, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, we approach you this morning. 
having gleaned through your word, Father, we ask that you would just use it to honor you. We ask that you would use it to encourage the saints. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So that's a great lesson for us, isn't it? This is a wonderful lesson. This is a great lesson for me. And uh, the very fact that, you know, the Lord Jesus says here, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What is the path to greatness in the kingdom of God? You know, what direction does it take? So first of all, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at some of the great men and women in the Bible whose lives were marked and ultimately with greatness. Um, These were not self-seekers. They were not glory seekers. Those who sought to be lifted and preeminent or prominent. But these are the ones who served God with a heart of humility. Selflessly, they presented themselves to God. People like Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham would say, Behold, now I have taken to speak unto the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Abraham was a very humble man. We don't always see him that way. But as you dig deeper into his life, you see he was humble. Isaac, Isaac was willing to die as an offering as that was the Lord's will. You know, Joseph, you remember Joseph was dishonored and he was sold into slavery by his brothers and and uh, But he humbly forgave those villainous brothers, didn't he? And he never held it against them. In, in Genesis chapter 15, it says that when he saw his brothers, he wept and he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. And then there's Moses. Right? Moses, he would say, who am I that I, I should go into Pharaoh? Who, how can you use me, God? Moses was a very humble man. You know, Joshua himself when the children of Israel failed and they were disobedient and they would, they would lose the battle, he would fall on his face and he'd cover himself in dust. Very humble man. So these are some of the great heroes of the Old Testament and most of those that I've mentioned, or actually all of them, are in Hebrews chapter 11, those great heroes of the faith. And there's more. And, you know, too many for us to mention through the Bible. Um, But, you know, you think of the great prophets, the Old Testament, like Jeremiah, who said, Ah, Lord, who am I to speak? And then you think of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist when the Lord Jesus would come to him to be baptized? That John the Baptist would be shocked that the Lord Jesus would even consider him to be baptized, to baptize him. And he says, he says in... um, he says to the Lord Jesus, ah, Lord, who am I? And we see that, that John the Baptist, who was shocked, he would cry out, he must increase and I must decrease. For it is he who is worthy and I who am unworthy, even to loosen the lashes of his sandals. Jesus would speak of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, and he would say, there has not, there, there's not risen a greater than John the Baptist. And the reason why he was the greatest was because he was the humblest. Peter, you think of Peter and that time in Luke when he said to the Lord, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
Paul found greatness in Acts. He says, I have served the Lord with all humility in mind. And then Jesus said in Matthew 18, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is great in the kingdom of heaven. James writes, God resists the proud, but pours out grace to the humble. And so we learn a great lesson here in this passage, in this epic of, of history, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're reminded a great lesson, and that is that greatness in God's kingdom is reserved for the humble. I'm reminded of the Beatitudes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the very first Beatitude, when the Lord Jesus would say, Blessed are who? The meat, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, no one enters the kingdom of heaven except for on their knees. The humble, the meek. It is those who the Father has prepared an eternal glory that we learn. And um, as we pursue, when we think about this idea of pursuing greatness, there's only one path to greatness, and that's the path of humility. If we pursue greatness that God honors, Scriptures teach us that we pursue it on the path of service. The Scriptures teach us that we, we pursue it on the path, of, the path of slavery. We are servants. Now, with that as a format for us to approach, we want to examine this whole idea, and that's my purpose this morning, to see what the, hum- what the path of humility looks like. What does it look like? And I think... This passage is going to help us, and it's probably the best passage for us to understand what this path of greatness looks like, humility. And we're going to look at it. We're going to pull out two points real quick. The first point is going to be how not to be great. And the second point is going to be how to be great in the kingdom. And the way that God honors it. And, you know, there, 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 there are earthly means of greatness in men's eyes, aren't there? That's pretty much, you know, goes without saying. The world will tell us that if you want to get something, if you want to be great in, the, in, in your kingdom, you've got you to gotta find out who the important people are, right? You gotta, it depends on who you know. If you want to climb the ladder, you got to get next to the people who got the influence. You, you, you want to, if you want to exceed in your prominence and, and the glory that the world has to offer, there's a certain political power that you need to be engaged with. Politicians, you know, they, they line themselves up with the right people so that they can, they can be lifted up and they can move on in their endeavors in power, they disguise themselves as as uh, uh, beneficiaries of of, uh, uh, of of kindness and goodness, and, and they try to surround them people, but uh, they have ultimate goals in their lives. They manipulate people. There's the world teaches us that you manipulate people and their circumstances, and you find those 
who want to get in with so that they'll pull you to the top. You know, the pyramid scheme. You've seen them before. And this is called greatness by influence or greatness by power play, political power play. And we want to look at that real quick. Look at verse 20. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And I want to make a note here real quick. And I'll make the note that this incident that we're reading here, it comes on the heel of the Lord Jesus just explaining how he was going to give his life. It comes on, on the heels of, of his coming death. And they seem to be absolutely, it didn't ever even clicked. You know, they're, they're thinking about a little bit earlier when the Lord Jesus says, well, if you leave, you know, one of the apostles said, or the disciples said, oh, well, we left everything. What are, what are we going to get from this? And then the Lord Jesus would say, well, if you follow me and you leave your houses and you leave everything, I'll give you a hundredfold. So these are the things that they're kind of thinking. They're not thinking of the fact that in verses 17 and, and 18, the Lord Jesus had said that his death was up and coming. And so the, 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 they come here and, and, and they, they, they say, they ask the Lord Jesus, they say, um, uh, bowing down, and Jesus says to him, what do you want? And she says, grant that my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the one on the left. You see that in verse 21. Now, when you think about that, that's a very prideful request, isn't it? You know, it's, you know she's, she's just uh, all welled up with this. And this has a lot to do with their understanding of the kingdom. They want the chief place in the kingdom. They, they want self-glory. They're looking at how they can be lifted up when they come into their kingdom, seeking promotion and honor. You know, they want to ride on the throne. They want to be next to Jesus so that when people look at them, they'll say, oh, look at those two. Look how close they are to Jesus. They must be two of the most holy people around. Those are some pretty holy people. They were pretty bold. You know, Mark tells us regarding these two men, James and John, Mark's tells, Mark tells us that they were described as you probably remember it, the sons of what? The sons of thunder. So that's a little disturbing to think about that, to think about how bold people would be to to achieve their own prominence, to move themselves along. But practically speaking, the church still does suffer from people like this. People who seek to have their preeminence, They love the chief seats like the Pharisees do in the synagogues. And it's true in Christianity, you know, people in the church who want to be known. Um, I think of much of Christianity that we know and the way it's kind of divided up, you know, um, as opposed to being like Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Many of them become the good cowboy. And what's the difference between a shepherd and a cowboy? A shepherd leads the sheep. They sit up front. They let the sheep see how they are. What does a cowboy do? He drives them, right? Jesus never said, I'm the good cowboy. He said, I'm the good shepherd. 
So their churches are like this, and it's really sad, and, and they, they esteem themselves. They lift up. They receive, you know, they think that doing this, they're going to receive their eternal rewards. But our Lord, he rejects political power. He rejects, he rejects power by influence. That's not what he came to. This is not how you reach the place of blessing and honor in the kingdom of God. So that's the first wrong way to get um, uh, great in the kingdom of God. There's another one. Look in verse 22, and I'm going to call this risky ambition. Now, they were very ambitious. You want to think about it. Um, In verse 22, it says, The Lord Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am? And it just just really kind of blows my mind that they would say these three words. We are able. Are you kidding me? They had no idea. And I can think the Lord Jesus would rightly say, you don't know what you're asking, lady. Do you really know what you're asking for? You don't know what you're talking about. You're, you're asking for glory, but you don't realize that the glory that I give comes from a different pathway. It comes from the pathway of suffering. It's not from influence. It's not from ambition. The pathway to greatness in the kingdom of God comes through suffering. You don't know what you're saying. She's, you know, I want my boys here and there and, you know, The highest places of glory. But the Lord Jesus says that the highest places of glory are reserved for those who went through the deepest path of suffering. Listen, listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul, would he just loved these. Sometimes when I just am overwhelmed when I read these epistles that the Apostle Paul, I would love to have that compassion that he has. And I asked the Lord for that. But he writes to the church in Corinth, and he's probably, you know, I mean, I know he's burdened by it. And he says these momentary light afflictions, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, these momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Moment, momentary light afflictions... I think most of us spend most of our lives avoiding life afflictions, light afflictions, don't we? Avoiding it and seeing how we can live in our nice little plush lives, our, in our, uh, you know, nice world. You know, what is it that leads to glory? What is it that builds a greater weight, a more exceeding weight of glory? Well, he says it right there. Affliction. It's affliction, these momentary light afflictions. So when we're afflicted, now I'm not saying physically. I'm not talking about your health. We're not talking about physical or or illness. We're not talking about affliction because of some carelessness or because of sin in our lives. When we're talking about affliction, we're talking about being persecuted and suffering for the cause of Christ, for the cause of the gospel. Sometimes I have to suffer just to pull a track out and hand it to somebody. Should I do it? They may think badly of me. No. Right? These momentary light afflictions. So, so if you seek, he says, he says, Jesus is saying, are you able to drink the cup that I shall drink? 
In other words, if you seek to sit beside me, if you want your two sons to sit beside me, are they willing to go through the path that I'm going to go through? If you seek to sit beside me, you will seek that same suffering that I experience. Are you able to drink that cup? And by the way, in the Old Testament, the cup was a symbol. It's an Old Testament, it's an idiom in the Old Testament, and it means to take everything in, to drink it up to the last drop. And we sing that song so lovely oftentimes. And that's the idea. The Lord is saying, are you able to suffer to the degree that I am to drink the whole cup? And the point is this, he is going to be exalted. The Lord Jesus is ultimately going to be exalted to full glory because he went through such profound suffering. Do you see how it works? That's how God balances it. It's because he suffered, he's glorified the most. He suffered the most, he's glorified the most. And whoever suffers next most to him will be glorified next to him. That's how the Lord balances it out. And so an eternal weight of glory, it's, it's, it's predicated on suffering. And if you seek then to find that place of glory where you can exalt the Lord Jesus forever and ever, it's the path of suffering. It's the path of suffering for the gospel. Um, When we look at the teaching of the Lord Jesus in verses 24 and 25, we're going to see some instruction here. We just looked at what it is to not find greatness in the kingdom. It's not in political power. It's, it's not in um, influence. Okay? But we look here, we're going to see some instruction now. Verses 24 and 25. In verses 24 and 25, he says, And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself, and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. And, by the way, you want to notice, these men were not being very spiritual, were they? At this point of the game, they were just flat out mad. Why were they mad? Well, they were mad because James and John's mother got to Jesus before they did. They wanted the very same thing that John, John and James' mother was trying to get for them. And so it made them mad. And it says they were indignant. They were mad because they got there before. Why? They, they sought the same thing. And the Lord Jesus says, I think I need to teach you a lesson. And he gives them this instruction. Another wrong way to be great in the kingdom of God. The first in verse 25, it's, a, it's kind of a dominant dictatorship. It's an intimidation. Do you know that? I don't know. Do you know people who try to intimidate you? Why? So they can get their way? I think of, I can tell stories when I was a little boy and I spent some time in places where you didn't want to be. That's how people lived. They lived by intimidation. And Jesus is saying here, I'm going to teach you a lesson in verse 25. And then later on, we'll see another one. And we'll call that kind of charismatic control. Look at verse 25. 
Jesus called them to himself and he says, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority. So the rulers lorded over them. We've seen it. We've seen that in history, haven't we? You think of some of the great rulers. You think of maybe Antichus Epiphanes. And then what about all of the Caesars and, and the pharaohs? You think of, you know, Pilate. And then there's Hitler. And who's the guy in Russia now that's doing stuff? Putin, right? Okay, so, so these are the dictators. And the, the Lord Jesus says, these guys rule it over you and to get their what? Greatness. This is, how they, this is how the world perceives greatness. And they've been here, they've gone, there's going to be more coming. They rule by a dominant dictatorship. They lord it over people. And that's how they get their greatness. But that's not the style of leadership you find in, in, in a lot of places. You find it in businesses and churches. It's still all over the place. And you think, you know, how to act. And, and people want to teach you, make you, you know, they want to control and dominate you so that tell you what to think and, and, and what to do. You know, like, you remember Jim Jones? That was one of those situations where even mainstream Christianity, they, 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 they take advantage of the situation. So the first thing we see here is that there's a dominant dictatorship. And look at the next part. And their great men exercise authority over you. They exercise authority over that word authority over you. It's exousizio, something like that. And the idea is to throw your weight around, to throw your authority. And people do that in many ways in this world. Sometimes they do it um, by money. You know people like that. They got plenty of money, and they let you know they got plenty of money. And because they have plenty of money, they, they kind of lord it over you. They exercise it over you. Um, they throw their weight around. You know, if you would be great, the Lord Jesus says, Remember, go back up to verse 32. He says, if you want to be great, learn the lesson in verse 22. Before honor comes humility. Before you ever get a crown, you got to drink the cup. And the way to be exalted is the way of humility. It's the way of lowliness. In verse 22, the Lord Jesus says, um, But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able and be baptized with the baptism? They said, we are. In verse 23, he says, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized. That's the verse I was looking for, that I am baptized with. But to sit on the right and the left, that's for my father. So the way to greatness starts with the low road. So there are those there are two things to notice in, verse, in those verses. One, that, or actually I brought up four points. It's not by influence. It's, it's not by uh, political power. It's not by lording it over. It's not by throwing your weight around. That's, that's not the path to greatness. If you'd be great, you want to learn those lessons. So look at verses 26 to 28. 
And there are two things we want to notice in these verses. There's a precept and a pattern, or an exhortation and an example. Let's look at the exhortation. We'll read verses 25 through 28, or I'm sorry, 26. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his ransom, his life for many. In the world, people get their greatness by these things we talked about, political power, risky ambition, dominant dictatorship, control, but not so, the Lord Jesus says. You're in a kingdom where all of that is reversed. You remember um, when Pilate would see the Lord Jesus and he would say, uh, are you a king? What, what kind of a king are you? I don't see your soldiers. I don't see your castle. I don't see your horses. What kind of a king are you? Do you remember what the Lord Jesus responded? He would say, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not like you. What, what did he mean? He meant my kingdom doesn't operate on the principles of the kingdoms of this world. It's the opposite. In fact, it's the reverse. It's in the world, it's, there's that pyramid we mentioned. You get on top of the pile, you control everybody underneath you. You know, that's the way that the world operates. In God's kingdom, it's inverted. It's the other way around. In God's kingdom, it's like Lenski would say, that commentator, he would say, the great men are not sitting on top of lesser men. They are bearing lesser men on their backs. That's the greatness in the kingdom of God. Not getting yourself to the top. The Lord Jesus would say, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus says, that's not so among you. So to begin with, we do not seek greatness in the kingdom as the world seeks it. Now, as you approach here in verse 26, you see that's the different standard. And then you hear this statement, whosoever will be great among you. Okay, and we can stop there for a minute because that's important. Literally, it means whoever wishes to become great. And so if you seek it, is there anything wrong with seeking to be great? I just want to throw that out there. Now, there's not anything wrong to be seeking great. It's what you're seeking is, is what the difference is. If you seek greatness on God's terms, then you'll seek it on his path. You'll take his track that he's ordained, and we've already looked at it, that the track or the path of greatness in the kingdom of God is not my own glory, right? But it's in suffering. One of my favorite passages in in the scripture out of Philippians chapter 1, Apostle Paul would write to them and he would say, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not to only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's throughout. It's, it's the thread throughout of all of the New Testament. Greatness comes through suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And that kind of helps us to deal a little bit more honestly with the issue to the path of glory. 
It's a path of suffering. It's a path of sacrifice. It's a path of slavery. And these are not, these are attitudes, by the way. These are attitudes. These, it's, it's not, I'm being slashed and burned like a slave like that. This is an attitude. Are you willing to do this for the Lord? In 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul, who I kind of feel is another very humble man, he would write this, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found trustworthy. But listen to this. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. And in many ways, he says this little thing, whether men judge me, it's a small thing to me. It's, It's even a small thing that I judge myself because I happen to be, I'm not that objective. (laughs) And when we judge ourselves, we usually measure ourselves with other people. And when we measure ourselves with other people, you know, we don't become very objective. He says, I don't even listen to my own evaluation. I'm not, and I don't care about what other people's evaluations are either. He says, what I'm looking for is the day when the Lord brings light to the hidden things of the heart. So when the Lord brings light to the hidden things of the heart, when he makes manifest those secret things, and only God can judge our motives. He's the only one that can read our motives. But there is a truth to the fact that we can read a little bit from the outside, can we not? We can read a little bit from the outside because if a man seeks to give his life for Christ, if he seeks to spend himself, if he seeks to be the best teacher he can be or the best Christian he could be, if, if, he, if he seeks to be a, a disciple, a good disciple, and if he does these things to receive a reward, is that wrong? Of course not, because the Lord Jesus told us he would do that. But if he willingly seeks it through the path of self-sacrifice, through humility, as the Lord has described it here, and suffering, then that makes a man's motives pretty pure, I would have to think. That makes a woman's motives pure when they seek these things and are willing to go through the sacrifice and to go through the service that the Lord has called us to do. Now let's look real quickly at the end of verse 26 because... um, It says, if you want to be great, let them be your servants. That's the path. You know, you don't want to get tied down to the things of this world. I don't know if most of us realize how fleeting these things are. Um, Some of you may have been good at keeping your bank account to a high number, but it's very fleeting and it doesn't satisfy And so the heart of the servant is a heart that truly pursues greatness. In um, verse 27, he basically reiterates the same thing. But he makes a little more stark contrast. He says, and whoever will be chief, and the word here, it means whoever will be first, let him be 
your servant. And he uses the word even of a lesser nobility than the servant. The, mean, the word is bond slave. Whoever would be first, let him be your slave. And by the way, when we think of slave, we don't really know. You know, most of us haven't had slaves. We haven't seen slaves. Most of us are, we don't really know. It's some past thing in a lot of words. But, but when he speaks to these people, they know. They, it, is, it is a very graphic demonstration of how committed they should be to serving one another, to find greatness. It was a tremendous illustration in their world that they would be slaves, that they, would, they knew what it was to see a slave whipped. They knew what it was to see a slave beaten. And, you know, um, they knew the horrible conditions that they lived in. So this was a very real demonstration to them, and they knew about it. I found a poem, actually it was brought up to my attention, from Amy Carmichael. I'm just going to read this, and then we'll close up here in a minute. She writes, Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascent star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? The cost of greatness is humility. It's suffering. It's not avoiding it. It's embracing it in a lot of ways. Well, let's look at, we just looked at the exhortation. Let's look at the example in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. First of all, we look at that, that phrase, for as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He is our example. This is the greatest example. You say you love Christ. You say you abide in him. First John says, if you say you abide in him, you ought to walk as he walked. And his life? was a, a life abandoned and utterly abandoned, an act of humble, selfless service. You know, when you read through the New Testament, I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've ever seen at any point in the New Testament or in the Gospels where Jesus was laughing. He was the son of what? Sorrows, a man of sorrows. Um, and he walked that way. He says, if, John says, if you say you abide in him, you ought to walk as he walked. You know, the scriptures teach us that he thought it not robbery. He didn't think of it something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was found in a fashion as a man. This, this, is, this is intricate. He humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even death of the cross. This was a humble man, a suffering man, the Lord Jesus. He went through the greatest humiliation, 
You think about God becoming man. You think about the sovereign universe, and we talked about that this morning a little bit. The sovereign of all eternity, he came to be a victim of sin. And that is the greatest of all humiliation it could possibly be. So Jesus sets the pattern for us. He gave his life on behalf of us. And the passage could end there, but it doesn't. There's another phrase that will qualify, you know, because if we left it there, we could just say Jesus was a good example. And so the Spirit of God adds to it and adds a brand new teaching which has not been taught yet in all of the New Testament. And it's this, that he gave his life not just for an example, but as a ransom. He gave his life as a ransom. And here we're introduced for that very first time in the New Testament, the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his life a ransom. The substitutionary, vicarious, ransoming, redeeming act on the cross. It's not only an example. He's not just a good man. He gave his life a ransom. First Peter tells us, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. We were slaves to sin, were we not? We were under the domain of Satan. We, 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 were under, we were victims of our own flesh in the world, destined for hell. But scriptures teach us that Christ paid the ransom to release us. Romans 8 tells us the glorious liberties of the sons of God because of what he did. There's liberty because of what he's done. That's a great thought. His death was not only an example, it was also a ransom. One final thought, the word many. The word many. He gave his life a ransom for how? Many. The word many, it's an expression referring to all. And it's used as a contra- in a contrasting way over against the sacrifice, many are ransomed. One sacrifice, many. One sacrifice, many. And I believe, as I'm sure most of you do here, I believe Christ provided a ransom for all. The sacrifice that he made, the sacrifice that he gave, could have redeemed every soul born on this earth. It has the power to do that. He gave a ransom for all. And the scriptures point out that in a lot of ways. We obviously don't have time to take that up right now. He's been ransomed for all of us. Now it's just our responsibility to appropriate it, to receive that ransom, to receive that payment. Because of what he did, Philippians 2 says, God highly exalted him. Because he gave the most, he was exalted the highest. Because it says he was exalted to a place. He gave him a name in which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So what happened 
was because he was so humbled because he offered himself self-sacrificing service. God highly exalted him. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven, greatness in the kingdom of God, the path to greatness is proportionate. In proportion to our humility is the glory. In proportion to, to greatness is going to be based on our willingness to sacrifice for him. In proportion to his humility, he was glorified. And that's a principle that I think is taught here for us to learn. Greatness in the kingdom, capacity for glory in the kingdom of God is in direct proportion to the humility and self-sacrifice and service rendered. So for the believer, I challenge us, each of us here this morning, put your hand to the work. Be willing to sacrifice. Be willing to serve. And that's a simple yet a profound truth. Jesus, yes, he's our example, but he's also our ransom. Father, thank you for this, your word. I know, Father, that how powerful and full your word is and our meager attempts to apply it and assign it to our lives is. And yet, Father, we know that... um, You judge our motives. You judge our hearts. I pray for the saints here, Father, that they too would be challenged, even as this passage explains to us the greatness in the kingdom of God is proportionate to service and surrender. Jesus, our example. Jesus, our ransom. And we thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen.